Hey, welcome to New Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Tommy Allen. I am the lead pastor here, and we are glad you are here. This morning, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 7. I believe it's the 36th in our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible. But before we jump into that, I thought I would uh, lead us in a confession of sin, as we're doing in church, which we are meeting publicly now at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We would love to have you with us. If you feel safe, uh, if you'll, you feel comfortable, and the COVID numbers are dropping, everything's looking good, so we're looking forward to seeing you, especially with Easter coming up in several weeks. So if you want to follow along in the Confession of Sin, you can find it in the description. So let us pray. Almighty God of the prophets, you have called us to glorify your name through our love for you and for one another. We confess that our praise is more on our lips than with our lives. We profess repentance while we resist change. We talk of peace while we prepare for war. We sing of love, but we curse our enemies. We pray your will be done, but insist on our way. Have mercy on us, tender God, and cleanse and forgive our selfish ways. May Jesus Christ, who came long ago, come once more into our lives. Help us to be at peace with you, one another, and ourselves as members of your kingdom, which is now at hand through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Now when we pray that confession of sin in church, I give you a moment to confess your sins silently, and then I would follow that with an assurance of pardon, saying something like, if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive them, and know that he has cast them as far as the east is from the west, and he will never ever hold them against you. So know that you are forgiven, and be at peace. Amen and amen. So let's jump into this passage this morning. Um, basically, if you consider the passage we're looking at this morning, um, let me ask you two questions, or one question really. And the question is this, would you consider yourself to be a big sinner <laughs> or an itty bitty bitty little tiny sinner? Okay, those are your two options. Are you a big sinner or you are an itty bitty sinner? Or maybe are you like just right? <laughs> you see, if you're not sure which kind of sinner you are by the end of this passage, my guess is you're going to have a little bit of clarity. Why don't I read the first few verses of this and then I will pray for us. So the passage says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, that's Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. So the past few sermons in the Jesus Storybook Bible have all come from Luke's gospel. And if you remember Luke's gospel, um, 
he's really concerned with accurate information. He's a historian, uh, among other things. Um, but he also has this theme running through his gospel that has to do with two different kinds of people and how they respond or how they interact with Jesus. And if you remember, the two kinds of people are rule breakers and rule keepers, generally speaking. And so rule breakers tend to be um, big sinners. They tend to be um, sinners, frankly, that we would consider to be scandalous, or certainly in Jesus' day, they would have been considered to be scandalous, tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, people like that. The, on the, uh, on, and they tend, in Luke's gospel, they tend to embrace Jesus. They tend to, to embrace being found by Jesus, being loved by Jesus, being healed by Jesus. So you have big sinners, positive response to Jesus. You have, on the other hand, rule breakers, rule keepers, and rule keepers, they tend to be itty-bitty sinners. And the itty-bitty sinners, they tend to be the Pharisees, and the Sadducees and the rest of the religious leaders. And their response, inevitably, in Luke's gospel certainly, is that they are antagonistic toward Jesus. Now, the problem for them is their antagonism toward Jesus uh, almost inevitably comes out looking like um, a Wile E. Coyote versus Roadrunner cartoon. In other words, if you remember Looney Tunes, Looney Tunes are my favorite. If you remember Looney Tunes, Wile E. Coyote is constantly trying to capture the Roadrunner. And he constantly is doing all these crazy things. And he buys all this equipment from the Acme company. Like one of my favorite is Acme Instant Hole. Right? And so the Roadrunner is coming along. Beep, beep, and, he run, and he throws down the Instant Hole. And the Roadrunner just stands on top of the hole. And Wile E. Coyote looks at it. He can't believe it. And then the Roadrunner takes off. And then he steps on the hole and falls right in it. So that's what the relationship of the Pharisees to Jesus is. They're like Wile E. Coyote. They're constantly trying to set him up, constantly trying to catch him, and they're constantly stepping in their own instant holes. And so whatever, no matter what they throw at Jesus, he seems to always get the best of them. And today is no different. And today's passage provides a great example of what that looks like. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at a problem. We're going to look at a parable. And we are going to look at a principle. Okay? So that's problem, parable, principle. Three Ps. So what is the, the problem here? That Notice, let me open again. So verse 36, one of the Pharisees, we find out later his name is Simon, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So the, the problem that we are going to find out is the Pharisees, Simon, invited Jesus to his home in order, ultimately, I think, to humiliate him and to make him look bad and maybe to get see if they could make him angry enough to sort of storm out and just look like a sore loser. Um, because what happens here? Notice it says that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. What we find out is that Jesus, upon entering Simon the Pharisee's house, was not even extended the most basic forms of hospitality that would have been expected in the ancient Near East. Nothing. And in other words, in the ancient Near East, if you visited someone's home, there was a sort of baseline of hospitality that was expected. And what were the, there's three things that included. The first thing was a kiss. You were expected, you walk into someone's house and they go, oh, brother, and they kiss you. You know, the fake, even patronizing kiss at least once on one cheek, welcome to my home. Now, we also know the more kisses, the more welcome you are, 
Jesus got zero kisses from Simon when he entered his house. They also would have been expected to provide you some water for washing yourself and for, for, for cleaning the, the dust off of you because it was a dusty desert kind of place. And then the third thing they would have been expected to offer you was some kind of oil, usually some kind of cheap olive oil that you might use either to anoint yourself or to for medicinal purposes like chapstick, for example. But those three things, a kiss, water, and oil, were the basic. I mean, and if you didn't offer those to someone, you were treating them, practically speaking, as if they were an enemy. And so Jesus enters this home. He, they don't extend to him any of this hospitality. And what does Jesus do? It would have been within his rights to storm out of that place. It would have been within his rights to, to excoriate them and admonish them and to go and to talk trash about them everywhere to talk about how horrible a host Simon is, but Jesus doesn't do that. Why doesn't Jesus do that? Well, Jesus doesn't do that, probably, number one, because he loves the Pharisees just as much as he loves the big sinners. Jesus loves them, and his mission is to seek and save that which is lost. Little bitty sinners are just as lost as big sinners, and so Jesus doesn't leave. And not only does he not leave, I think the other thing he, the reason he doesn't leave is because he's getting ready to conduct a seminar <laughs> on forgiveness. In other words, he's getting ready to take them to school. And we know that because if you look at it, it says that he was asked to eat with them in verse 38.6. It says he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. In other words, most commentators make, make it a point that he, he made sure that he was the first one to sit down at the table, that Jesus reclined at the table, which meant he was going to be leading the conversation that evening. He was going to be in charge, even though Simon was the host. And so Jesus doesn't leave. And so up at this point, enter the sinful woman. Notice in verse 37, it says, And behold, check this out, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, notice how it makes a point of saying, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And that is not a generic term like, you know, we say, oh, we're all sinners, nobody's perfect. That's a technical term in the New Testament. And it meant that she was guilty of some notorious, scandalous kind of sin. Either she was a prostitute, maybe, or she was notorious for her adultery. But the fact is, and we find out later, everyone in the room knew that she had some kind of checkered history. And maybe she was a prostitute. I'm not sure what she was. But the fact is is that she sees the breach of hospitality and takes action. This big sinner does what Simon the Pharisee should have done. She takes action. And the first question you might want to ask, I would ask, I did ask, is why was she there in the first place? If she's such a scandalous sinner, how was she in the, in the room? She was already there when Jesus got there. And the answer is that apparently when Pharisees, religious leaders would have big dinner parties, uh, they were very magnanimous, and so they would open their doors and they would let poor people sit around the edges of the room, both to hear them pontificate and to, to talk about theology and the finer points of the law, 
and after the dinner, the Pharisees would give the scraps to the poor people, and that would sort of check the box that they were generous and did alms that week, that kind of thing. And so it wouldn't have been uncommon for sort of random people to be in there around the periphery. Now, this woman, I think, is a little different. Number one, she's not poor because she shows up with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. The other thing is she clearly had a plan. She brought this flask. That's not the kind of thing you would just carry around, you know, during the day. She brought the flask to Simon's house because she knew Jesus was going to be there and she had a plan. We don't know what that plan was. You know, perhaps she was going to just give Jesus that flask. I mean, in all probability, she had heard the preaching of Jesus. She had realized that in him was forgiveness of sins, and maybe she had experienced his, his love. Maybe she had experienced his acceptance, and she wanted to go to Simon's house to thank him. Maybe, if not give him the alabaster flask of ointment, but at least to anoint his head and, and give him a hug, if you will, whatever. But she had a plan when she got there, and as soon as she saw what went down with this breach of hospitality, she changed her plan, and she took action. Notice what she does. It says, standing behind him at his feet, that's verse 38, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, if you're wondering how that looks, remember the way that they would eat back in the day is they would recline at the table on these sort of couches and their feet would be behind them. So she comes up behind Jesus, his feet are exposed, and she begins weeping, and apparently there's so many tears that his feet need to be dried off. Now, the question is, why doesn't she just use, like, her sleeve, <laughs> right? Like, when I was a kid, and my nose was running, or I got something on my face, and we were getting ready to go someplace important, you know, my mom would hike up her sleeve, and she'd wipe it off. Why doesn't she just wipe off his feet with her sleeve? And I think because she's making a big statement here, an incredible statement here because what she does is scandalous in the eyes of the pharisees i mean if she was scandalous before she went in that room she is definitely scandalous now because notice it says she's she, standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment what is so scandalous about what she is doing there it's not just weird, right? I mean, modern people, we'd look at it and say, oh, that's, that's a little weird. What she did was scandalous because in the ancient Near East, much as is common today in Muslim culture, um, women were forbidden to show their hair to anyone but their husband. That they were to keep their hair covered, they were to keep it, keep it bound up, and no one but their husband ever would get to see their hair as, except maybe on, well, he would see it on her honeymoon. And other than that, no other man was supposed to see her hair. This woman has to have unraveled her hair so everyone could see it and dries Jesus' feet with it. But I think she's making a statement there. If you only show your husband your hair and she undoes her hair so that she can dry the feet of Jesus, what statement is she making? And I think it's just this. She's making a statement to Jesus that you are the first man that has loved me. My whole life, men have used me, they have abused me, they have you know, used me for everything. And here is a man who loves me, here is a man who accepts me, here is a man who will never fail me or forsake me, and I don't care who else in the world sees it. And see it, they do. 
because notice how the Pharisees respond to this scene that they see. They don't criticize Herb, right? Because they don't have a a high opinion of her at all. Um, Instead, they criticize Jesus. Notice verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. (laughs) Right? Had he used like the sort of Snape voice. Um, Simon sees this and says, If Jesus was really a prophet... He wouldn't let her touch him. He wouldn't talk to her. Why? Because if he knew who and what sort of woman she was, he wouldn't have let her do that. One of the questions that I always have in these situations when I'm reading the Bible is how come the Pharisees always know who the prostitutes are? Maybe that's none of my business. (laughs) But it's just interesting to me that the highfalutin self-righteous guys always seem to know who the loose women are. At any rate. Simon says, if, if Jesus knew who and what sort of woman she is, he, he wouldn't have let her touch him. The fact is, is Jesus knows exactly who and what sort of woman she is. You see, Simon's condemnation of the woman is to Jesus' actually rec- recommendation. That, that, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus came to save the worst of sinners. And the, the sinners are the ones who need a hospital. And the, so when Simon says she's like the most horrible sinner who ever lived, he has actually just articulated the person Jesus came to save. Now, unfortunately for Simon, Jesus knows who and what type of man he is. Just like he knows who and what kind of person I am, and he knows who and what kind of person you are. The question is, how are we going to, to respond to him? Here's how Jesus responds to Simon. He, he hears him maybe under his breath, or he just hears in his head, you know, however Jesus does that. And he responds to him with a parable. And notice what he says in verse 40. Jesus says, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, the language that Jesus uses here is is sort of a rabbinical technical term. He's, He's not saying, Simon, can I say something to you? What he's saying is, Simon, I'm gonna, I have to say something to you that you are probably not going to like. In other words, Simon, I need to challenge you right now. And Simon basically says, bring it. He says, say it, teacher. Like, go ahead and spit it out. Don't, don't beat around the bush. And Jesus says this. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay... He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. (laughs) And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So what's the parable here? Basically, um, Simon, Jesus tells this parable that one person owed, let's say, $50, and the other owed $500, and the money lender forgave them both. Whom do you think, who will love the money lender more? Now, 
don't miss here that Jesus has forgiven both the itty bitty sinner, 50 bucks, and the big sinner, $500. He's making it clear to Simon that in this, at least in the context of this parable, that small sins are, are as forgivable as big sins if you see the need for forgiveness. And so he asks him, Simon, which one do you, do you think would love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom the larger debt was canceled. Now, Simon clearly is trapped here, or he, whether he knows it or not, he's very slow to answer. He doesn't just immediately say, like most of us would, because it's common sense, that of course the person who had the larger debt forgiven would love him more. And he says, he says, the one I suppose, I mean, I guess that's the way it would be. He doesn't want to go there, but it is so clear that even Simon has to concede that. And what has happened here is then he goes on to compare Simon's failures with the women, woman's action. And his failures are great. So the, the question is, is he really as small a sinner as he thinks he is? You see, Simon and the woman, let's call her Mary. I don't know if that's, that was who this was. Simon and Mary, because of what they've both done here in the same room, they have become an object lesson for a principle. And it's a principle that is throughout uh, the New Testament, at least certainly it's implied. And what is that principle? Look at verse 37. It says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So what's the principle? It's basically this, whoever is forgiven a little bit, loves a little bit. Whoever is forgiven a lot, loves a lot or loves much. And then just to put a little mustard on that, I think Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. And what we need to notice here is just this, is Jesus doesn't diminish her sins. He didn't say, her sins aren't that bad, or her sins, you know, Simon, you're just as bad as she is. He said, her sins, which are many, she is definitely a big sinner. But he, so he doesn't diminish them or act like they didn't happen. He simply forgives them. And the way forgiveness happens is someone has to pay the bill for forgiveness. In other words, what does it mean to forgive? What it means to forgive is to pay someone else's bill. In the case of the money lender, he forgave $50 or he forgave $500. He was basically paying that bill for that person. And what happens at the cross of Jesus, we don't just receive unconditional forgiveness out of thin air. We receive forgiveness from Jesus because he pays our bill at the cross. He pays the debt that we owe, the debt of justice, the debt of the curse, the debt of guilt, all those things. He takes upon himself. He pays it. And in return, we are able to be forgiven. But someone has to pay the bill. Jesus paid it here. And he wants the woman to know very specifically that she has been forgiven. So the question is, how are the Pharisees going to respond to this? Are they going to look at this whole scene and go, man, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I can't believe that we ditched you. I can't believe that we've been plotting to kill you. I, I can't believe that we didn't give you a kiss and oil and water. I, I can't believe that. Will you please forgive us? Do they do that? No. What they do instead is they ask this question. 
Verse 49, it said, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? In other words, who does he think he is? In other words, instead of dealing with the sin in their heart, instead of receiving forgiveness themselves, they don't even probably love a little. The woman, on the other hand, I love the way Jesus, at this point, he's done with the whole thing. He looks at the woman, verse 50, and it says, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, sometimes the best way to deal with Pharisees is simply to ignore them. And that's what Jesus ends up doing at the end here. He has made his point. He has given this object lesson. He has taught them this principle. And now the question is, what will they do with him? Will they see themselves as big sinners or will they continue to try and destroy him? You know, let me, let me close with this. You know, I've been at our church for about... 15 years. And after about seven years here, when I started, after about seven years of it being really hard, I mean, how hard was it? I, I tell other pastors, my first seven or eight years at our church was like the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan, but it was every day. It was bad. Um, after about seven incredibly hard years, um, a group of people in our church decided that they didn't want me to be the pastor anymore which that's fine. They could have that opinion. The down problem with that is, is they, the way they thought they would accomplish that is by gossiping, by lying, by slandering. And that all sort of culminated in a letter, a brave anonymous letter that was sent to every member of our church, cataloging my real and or imagined sins. And at the top of the letter, it said, is this who you really want as your pastor, right? Those of you who are here at the time can remember that. It was very stressful for our whole church. What do you do when you receive a thing about your pastor? What is he gonna say? What are you gonna do? We had a conference call because of course I was out of town. The brave soul that sent it always did that. And so I just happened to be preaching this passage that week, the one we just looked at. And I remember telling our elders, can I just say something about it in front of the church? I mean, they were talking about bringing the denomination in, everything, it was crazy. How are we going to deal with this letter that has been written and sent to every member? It's anonymous, so you don't even know who to talk to about it. And so I remember coming and basically I stood up in front of the congregation, if you remember, if you were here, and basically made the point that the letter probably doesn't even go far enough. I told my story and as I told my story of what a rotten sinner I was, People were already weeping. In fact, if you remember, I told it in third person. And at the end, I sort of did like David. I am the man. I'm the one. I am the dirty, rotten, despicable sinner that has become your pastor. And I said, but here's the good news. If you have a congregation that's incredibly hard to love, you better call a pastor who has been forgiven an awful lot. I'm not going anywhere. In other words, the fact that I happened to be preaching this, this passage at the very same time that all of that happened, that letter that was sent about me became for me, it was a letter of condemnation, and yet, because I believed the gospel, because I didn't have any choice but to believe the gospel, it became for me a letter of recommendation. If you, need, if you want someone who can love people who are hard to love, you better find someone who has been forgiven a lot. Wiley Coyote, Roadrunner in that case. <laughs> Either way, ask yourself the question again, 
Do you see yourself as a big sinner? Because if you do, that is not a condemnation. Don't be condemned by that. But in fact, remember, be reminded that anything that that the devil, anything that you would say to yourself that might be condemnation to Jesus himself, it is a recommendation because Jesus came to save the worst of sinners. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would come and for for anyone who might be watching this that has not been forgiven for their sins, that is that is convicted that, wow, I need forgiveness and Jesus has paid the bill. I pray that they would give themselves to you, that they would be found by you. Father, I pray for those that, of us that struggle with the fact that we're just little itty bitty sinners and we, th- we think we're better than most people, that you would bring conviction there as well. But either way, I pray that you would bring grace and mercy and peace into our lives through your gospel. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, at this point in the service, um, we're doing a musical meditation, probably even right now. And we tell people if they want to give, they can give in a box at the back of the church or they can give online. And if you would like to give online, you can find the information in the description below. Many of you have. Thank you so much. So I thought I would end our time this morning with a profession of faith. And the profession of faith this morning is from the larger catechism. And the question is number 74. And it's the question is this question. What is justifying faith? Answer. Justifying faith is a saving grace that works in the heart of sinners by the spirit and the word of God. By it, sinners are convinced of their sinfulness and miserable condition and realize that neither they nor anyone or anything else can get them out of their lost condition. And by it, they give full assent to the truth of the gospel promise. They receive and rest on Christ and his righteousness for pardon from sin, as the gospel tells us, and for being accepted and accounted as righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Amen and amen. So let me send you from this place reminding you that the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love. And the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Leave this virtual place in the peace and hope of that knowledge. Amen and amen.